I'd like to talk tonight, you know, since so much is happening in the world, <clears throat> and uh, in many ways, you know, the world is, in many ways, in tremendous upheaval and turmoil. So I, I wanted to talk tonight about <clears throat> something which is very, very interesting, and it explains a lot of the historical phenomenon or I should say historical phenomena that has been going on for a long time uh, especially in today's time as, as we will see you know <clears throat> uh, just before I begin uh, this year should be a blessing and a merit for the health and success of the families of Regina Bas Yosef Ruven and Yeshaya Ben Yisrael Binyamin Wolf Ben Tzvi Hirsch and Baruch Ben Binyamin Wolf should go for the Twin uh, for these people. <clears throat> what has been going on in many ways in the last, actually it's more than 300 years and that's what I want to point out. Very important idea and like I said it explains a lot of historical events that we have seen and which uh, puzzle many people so I, I really want to talk about that and that brings me to a certain issue <clears throat> what is that issue <clears throat> <clears throat> we know that there ultimately the whole goal of creation is that the Rebbeinah wants a neshama in Oilam Habo which is eternal, where he and the Neshama will be connected with each other in a way which is called Vekas. Tremendous attachment, and that we will experience the Rabbanishnarim in a way which is now incomprehensible, <clears throat> and the attachment will be eternal. In fact, if you want to define the experience in Oilam Habo, we would, we would say it's infinite bliss eternally. It's really what Oilam Habo is. And what it is is something which we obviously at the present time cannot comprehend. But what the Rabbanisham did uh, is that he had a choice, so to speak. He could have given this for free, which, you know, uh, which would mean that you will be created and then immediately placed in Oilam Habo. Or the Rabbanisham could give it to you based on efforts that you would have had expended to achieve it. In other words, then Oilam Habo would be a reward as opposed to being a gift. You see. So what he decided, uh, obviously I'm not going into it, is that he wants your position in Oilam Habo, to be completely dependent on your acts. Then, that's what justice is. Justice is condition. If you do act A, then you will receive act B. If you don't do act A, then you don't receive act B. That's the concept of justice. You see, it's a concept of an exact or precise reciprocity. So what the Rosham decided 
is that he will give you Olam Habo, but on the condition that you do a certain series of acts. And therefore the world is created under the principle of din, justice. Now justice means that you will be punished or rewarded based on your acts. If you do bad, then you can get punished or cease to exist, which is called obliteration or annihilation. If you do certain acts which are praiseworthy and which what he requires, then you will merit to be, to have, I should say, eternal life. You see, and that's also justice. Therefore, obviously, your future state is completely dependent on your acts. Now, that obviously requires a whole different setup. You know, obviously requires, well, you know, an oilam haba, but it requires also a place <coughs> that you can actually do the work that is required. So you need a certain place or a situation, and that, of course, is called oilam hazeh, this world, you see. And it requires two different time periods. One time period is the time period of acting. You do actually the actions. And the other time period is the reward. So not only do you have two different places, but you also have two different acts, you know, at two different times, and so on, right? And therefore, that is the conditions of getting Oilam Habo. But I want to tell you something which is very important, which I'm going to, you know, uh, dwell on at length eventually. <clears throat> Besides that, if you look at the characteristics of God, his midas, now it's important to understand that the Rav created these midas, which means that he doesn't intrinsically have these midas. In many ways we think he does, but he doesn't. But he created the concept of these characteristics and he embodies them in the sense that he personifies them, he practices them to the nth degree. So whether he internally feels these actions or these characteristics, to us is not really relevant. But his behavior or his conduct is completely, absolutely consistent with these acts. What are these? And there are three of them. One, and we will understand them, is Rachamim. God is merciful. What is Rachamim? Rachamim, or compassion or mercy, is the attribute of waiting. In other words, to suspend justice. Right? In other words, let's say somebody does a sin. So God will not bring any type of retribution immediately. He won't do anything. He'll wait. Maybe the person will do tshuva. So that's Rachmem. God is a tremendous, merciful being. In fact, He's infinitely merciful. We don't even realize how merciful He is. You see, that's the first characteristic. The second characteristic is Chesed. God has a tremendous desire, so to speak. Again, don't take this literal, right? But He behaves with the attribute of chesed, 
which is kindness. What is kindness or chesed? Where God will give you something for no reason, other than the fact that He wants to do it. In other words, there's no conditions. It's not because you deserve it for anything that you did. The Rebbe wants to be kind to you, which means to bestow upon you tremendous benefit, whatever the nature of the benefit is. And he wants to do that because he is a Baal Chesed. That's his, I, should, I shouldn't say, that's his attribute or his, his characteristic that he assumes. Okay? So that's the second idea. The third idea is probably the greatest of all. The third characteristic is God loves mankind, whatever that means. Now, love obviously is an emotion, right? <clears throat> but it's basically characterized by an intense desire of what is called to attach to another being. When you love another being, you have a tremendous desire to attach yourself, you see, to that being. That's really what love is. A tremendous desire to be as one with that being. Okay. God loves mankind. In fact, especially God loves Jews. How do I know this? It says that. That, It says it many times. For the Lord your God loves you. You see, and God doesn't use vocabulary in an imprecise way. Not only does God love the Jewish people, but He loves them absolutely, infinitely. And we cannot fathom that midah. We've never experienced that. I mean, let's say even a man and wife, and they profess to love each other, it is, is almost infinitely less than the love that God bears the Jewish people. Because that's what He says. And it says many times, you see, now the results of that is astounding, as we will see, because each one of these attributes, the consequences of each one, in many ways, is startling. And uh, many consequences are, the, the reason for them is because of these three. Okay, I, I have an acronym, Acher, which is Avo, love, Ches, which is Chesed, and Reish, which is Rachamim. So God has this attribute, Acher, that He exhibits to another. That's an easy way to remember it. Uh, and like I said, these attributes are what God adapted as characteristics that He will always, absolutely, infinitely, and eternally exhibit. What does that mean? Well, for human loves, he doesn't always love. Every once in a while, it diminishes or it disappears, you know, and so on. God is not subject to time. If he loves you, it's infinite and it's eternal. It never stops. You see, you never have to worry, well, maybe he'll stop loving me. If God is compassionate, then he's infinitely compassionate and it never stops. And if God is chesed, he, loves, he wants to benefit you without any condition, well, guess what? It's infinite, 
and it never stops <coughs> you see these are very important ideas and because of these ideas they present a tremendous I'm going to use a word which is strange then I will have to explain it these ideas uh, not force God but they put God in an unbelievably challenging position now we know God has no challenges I mean it's obviously right I use the word from our perspective because to us we have no idea how we'd get around the problem that the fact that God has these three meters three attributes what what is the challenge well the challenge is what God decided he decided you want to be attached to me eternally right in the future world then there's a concept called Midas Adin. <clears throat> yeah, but wait a minute. What happens if the guy doesn't do what is necessary to be done? Then according to Midas Adin, which is the attribute of justice, he doesn't get the future world. Yeah, but wait a minute. That's contrary to God's love. He loves you. Right? And he has tremendous chesed. So the question then is, wait a minute. What will God do? He will have to violate his own decree of Midas Hadin. Yeah, but there's a reason why God wants people to earn their reward. And it's called Namadik Sufa, which is bread of shame, which I won't go into. But God wants, like I said, a person to deserve this state. And obviously, one of the things that he had to do in order to allow you to deserve the future world, is he had to give you free will. And then you are called truly, what? The owner of your acts. Because God does not put into your mind what to do. <clears throat> you see, you have free will, which means that the decision to do an act is not placed there by God, which has tremendous amount of what's called epistemological problems without getting into that free will is means that you decide what you want to do and that itself automatically means that you are the owner you are the cause of the behavior that you exhibit you see and since you have free will then then justice then looks at you and say okay what did you do because whatever you did is truly up to you. Now, I'm not going to go into the whole idea or the topic of free will. You know, do you always have free will? Is every situation with free will? When is it possible not to have free will? That's a whole topic in itself, obviously. But clearly, we have completely free will. We know this. How do we know? Because it says in Devarim, And you will choose life. Now, wait a minute. If we don't have free will, what's there to choose? Then the decision to do acts which will allow us to be in the future world is compelled if we don't have free will. So how could it say, and you will choose life? So from that postic we learn that we have free will. Obviously, that's what the Torah says. Uh, so here's the problem, as I just said. God decreed that in order for us to get the future world and the attachment to God and infinite, uh, what he called, 
a reward and benefit and, and whatever, the infinite state of goodness and so on, we need to earn it. We need to do it ourselves. We have to be truly the owner of that position. So that's din, justice. But at the same time, God loves us. Right? And also there's the other meter of chesed. He wants to benefit us without any reason. And so the question then is, how does God meet the challenges? You see. Now remember, of course God doesn't have any challenges. But to, our, to us, it would say, wow, what does he do? Because we would be unbelievably challenged if this is the way our society runs. You see. <clears throat> so, what we begin to understand is that there are many, many different strategies. Many. That God employs, okay, in order to overcome this apparent contradiction. Now, and by the way, I just want to mention that tonight is Tu B'Shvat, which is very important, obviously, you know. Uh, it's the new year for trees because that's when the fruit begins to blossom. And I thought it would be interesting uh, to know two things about this, Tu B'Shvat. Different months have different forces behind them. And uh, Esau, his force, his month, is Teves. Okay? Uh, in fact, the mazel, the, uh, the uh, astronomical sign of Teves is the goat. And he's, he's known as a seir. You know, as a seir, which means a goat and so on, you know? But his mazel, which is a bad month, it's not good, because that's when his uh, ability to do things, right, reigns, ends by Shvat, you see. And by Shvat, in the middle of Shvat, it ends. So the middle of Shvat, by the way, is a very powerful change that takes place. In fact, if you want to know, it's very interesting that Shvat begins the muzzle, okay, of Ador, and Ador is the force of Yosef, Mashiach ben Yosef specifically, okay, and uh, therefore the muzzle changes in the middle of the month. So we are no longer under the muzzle of Esav, we are now tonight entering the muzzle of Yosef, specifically Mashiach ben Yosef, okay, so which is great news. And uh, I just want to mention that I, I found a Pasuk in Shir Hashirim, Perik Beis, Pasuk Yud Beis, second Perik, Pasuk 12. Very interesting. It says, at the time of the blossom, if you look at it in English, at the time of the blossoming will be the time of singing. Okay? What singing? And the voice of the turtle dove, Kolatur, will be heard. That's a tremendous remez, illusion. The time of the blossom is when? Is Tubishvat. That's when the tree begins to blossom. You see. And what will happen? There will be tremendous singing. Singing of what? The redemption. 
It's an interesting remez, illusion. What's the remez, or what will the singing be? The redemption, and that is the voice of the turtle dove, you see. And the dove represents the Jewish people. So that is the dove returning back to God and so on, you know. So it would certainly be tremendous if tonight the turnaround that brings the Mashiach would begin. It would be tremendous. Anyway, I just wanted to share that with you and so on. So we now begin the forces of good. Ador is Mashiach bin Yosef and Nisan, of course, right, is Mashiach bin David. And that begins the redemption process itself. And that's really in many ways very important and so on, you know. Anyway, so that's what I, I wanted to share with you in terms of tonight. <clears throat> in any case, so therefore what I'm presenting is a tremendous challenge that we look at as a challenge. How does the Russian get around me this Adin? That's the question. And that's what I want to bring down. How does the Bersham do it? How does he get around Midas Adin and he gets all the Jews, right, into Eilim Haba? So I'm going to give you a whole list of ways, strategies, that the Bersham employs to get all the Jews in the future world. And in many ways, to save many people, even if they're non-Jews and they have been uh, righteous and so on. You see, now, one of the ways, I'm, I hopefully I'll discuss two of them tonight, I hope, and then continue uh, next week and so on or whatever. The first way is a very interesting way. The Russian created an angel, a malach, and his job is justice. He's always looking out to what? To make sure that the entire operations of the world conforms to justice. You see, we know the name of the Malach, it's the Sutton. The Sutton is a prosecuting attorney. Tremendous Sine adversary. But his job really is a normal job of justice. He's a prosecutor, you see. <clears throat> so his job, he has three jobs. First job, is to tempt you to sin. In that role, he's called the Satan. Excuse me, he's called the Eight Sahara, right? The evil inclination. That's his job, because if he doesn't tempt you, you'll never sin. So what's the whole point? You have to have an inclination to sin. Uh, you know, if not, then you will never do the job. You won't sin. It's not enough that sin is possible. You need to have a drive, an inclination to sin. And on the other side, you need to have an inclination to do good. And it is those two inclinations, those two drives, that force you to make a decision. You see, what do you want to do? You see, you know, in a certain way, it's like being in an arena with another fighter. You know, if you want, you could sit in the arena and do nothing. No, but you got to fight this guy or else he's going to come and beat you up, and so on. So the inclinations, and that's why we have Yitzroy's inclinations. That's why we have them. There is an inclination in which we are compelled, right, uh, to feel something. 
So either we are comp not compelled, but we feel an inclination to sin, or we have an inclination to do good. Those are the two Yitzroys, the Yitzahara and the Yitzatayv. In any case, so that's the first job of the Sultan, to provide that drive, that inclination, okay, to sin. The second job of the Sultan is that if you do sin, he is the prosecuting attorney, he will prosecute. What does that mean? He will adhere or uphold justice and try to prosecute you to be, if you are found guilty, right? Then he takes on a, a third role, which is called the Malachamavas, the angel of death. Not that he has to kill you, but he's also responsible to administer justice. So there you have it. He's got three roles all surrounding the concept of justice. Now normally, he's an angel. Where does he derive his existence from? And the answer should be from God. In fact, we all derive our existence from God, from nanosecond to nanosecond. God has to constantly will us to exist. In other words, he, he wills us to exist. That's the initiation. We exist. But don't think that God can now think about other things. No. He has to constantly sustain our existence by willing, be, be, be. It never ceases. Because if God ceased to will that we should exist, the entire existence of everything would immediately obliterate. Immediately, you see. So therefore, everything needs the input of the will of God to exist. And it's not only we, human beings, animals, existence, inorganic matter, and so on, but angels. Angels have need the same input that God wants them to exist. But there's something that happened which is very strange. Odomarishan was tempted by the snake <coughs> to eat from the tree, right? <coughs> the tree of... Uh, uh, the tree of life and so on, you know. Uh, the one who tried to get him to sin, to eat from that tree, even though he was commanded, you're not allowed to eat from that tree, right? So first he approached Chava, his wife, to sin by eating from that tree, you see. And he succeeded in getting her to taste from that tree. And then she, of course, went to her husband, and somehow she carried the same argument, and he sinned also by eating from the tree. <clears throat> So what God said something is very interesting. He said, look, until now, you what? You should, have listened, you should not have listened to the Sultan. Ignore him, and so on. But what happened is you bought into the argument, right, of the Sultan, where you believed his argument. And therefore, as a result of that, he punished Adam with death, whatever, and the fact that Adam has to work to survive and we know for Chava he punished her with the whole concept of menstruation and childbirth which is difficult and so on but he also punished the snake who was the snake? the Sultan for offering that particular type of argument which I don't want to go into because the argument was pure slander of God which the Sultan should never have done without getting into that <clears throat> so God said to the Sultan you see, that your existence is no longer dependent only on me. You will be dependent on the acts of man 
and today it's the acts of the Jew. If the Jew sins, or rather, if the Jew does a, my commandment, he will bring down the divine flow, the divine energy, right? And he will flourish. If, however, he sins, which goes against my commandment, right? Then that flow that should have gone to him, that will go to you. And in that sense, you will be yoinek. Yoinek, which means to nourish from the holiness that the Jew could have attained for himself. That means that the Satan can only exist if he takes that holiness, that divine energy and divine flow from the Jew himself. If the Jew take, does all the commandments of God, all of the Jews, then the Satan dies, literally, because all the energy of God is going only to the Jew and not to the Satan. Well, without that energy, he's dead. It's finished. But what happens if the Jew sins? Then the Satan can take from that energy and grow and also flourish. And what he does is terrible in many ways. He now gives the energy to the Goyim, the non-Jews, to destroy the Jews without getting into the entire give and take. But we see something very interesting, that what God did is what? Is he gave the Satan the ability to survive based on the Jew sinning. So if the Jew sins, that's great for the Satan. If he doesn't sin, then ultimately the Satan will die. Now, which means that God took away the original source of existence of the Satan. You see, originally, and undo it the Jew, or Adam Horishan, the first man. He got directly his energy from God, just like all the angels get the energy from God. <clears throat> so the question is, it looks like the reason why God did that, you see, is in order for the Satan, right, uh, to be punished. Because now we've got to make sure, you see, that man sins, that the Jew sins. So it's no longer a luxury. In fact, what's interesting, the Satan wants to make sure that the Jew sins. It's almost not because of justice or because to get Oilem Haba. He needs it to survive. So what comes out is that the Satan is in an eternal combat with the Jew. You see, he's literally in combat with the Jew because he's got to get the Jew to sin or he dies. So his interest, which is interesting, is no longer an interest in, you know, uh, what he called uh, conforming to justice or making sure that justice is now present in the world. No, his interest is to survive. So he's got to get the Jews to sin, you see. And then he prosecutes him, he tempts him, he prosecutes him, and then the, the Jew is punished. But part of the punishment whereas the Jew renounces that holiness that he would have taken had he done the mitzvah, not the sin. <clears throat> now, the question is, why did God do that? I mean, you want to punish the Satan? There are ways of doing it, right? They, he could have created tremendous hardships to the Satan. Why did he, why is this uh, so necessary to give this Satan a reason why he's got to get the Judas sin. And the answer is a very, very important idea. Because here's the problem. All of a sudden, the Jew sins. Right? And there he is. There's a Satan. 
right, defending justice. And he says, wait a minute, the Jews sinned, he should be punished. So what's God going to do? I mean, he could kill the Sultan, that's not a problem. But he created the Sultan to defend justice. So obviously he's not going to kill the prosecuting attorney. Oh, you see? So what the Russian did is incredible. The problem is that the Sultan then, before the sin of Adam, his whole, as they say, reason for being, right, was to defend justice. That's it. Now, the reason why he wants Adam to sin, right, why he wants to prosecute, is because he wants to survive, which is a different motive. So what God did is incredibly, he gave the Sultan a self-interest, you see. And now, since the Sultan has a self-interest, God could say, well, you know, I can give you a way to survive without prosecuting the Jews. And the Sultan will say, really? Because that's really what he wants to do. He wants to survive. You see, so God says, I will give you a way to survive without having to prosecute the Jews. So God can actually get the Sultan to stop the prosecutions. You see, and as a result of that, the Jew survives. And he's not even prosecuting in the heavenly tribunal. Isn't that amazing? So that's what God did. He gave the Sultan an in, a self-interest other than defending justice. He gave him an interest which is to survive, to nourish from the holiness without having to prosecute the Jews. That's called shoychad l'sotan, bribe to the Sultan. And it's a bribery. You know what a bribery is? Walk over to a judge and say, you know, you know, you're the prosecuting, you're the judge, right? But I want to tell you something. If you do it my way, I'll give you a million dollars. I'll write out a check to your favorite charity, obviously, which of course is himself. And, uh, and um, yeah, hey, well, that's a classic bribe, you see, where the judge will say, okay, I will find you innocent, you know? And I'll tell you exactly where you can deposit, which charity to give that check, right? That's a bribe, you see? <clears throat> so what the Rabbanisham offers the Sultan is a bribe. I will allow you to exist or show you a way to exist, right, by the energy of the Jew, right? And you'll survive that way, where you don't have to prosecute the Jew. So the Sultan will say, <coughs> no problem, okay. Now, do we see this in history? Yes. That's a very important concept. And it's one of the ways that God gets around din, justice, by getting the prosecuting attorney not to prosecute. Because remember, justice needs a prosecutor. If you don't have a prosecutor, it doesn't make a difference if you sinned. There's nobody prosecuting you in the heavenly tribunal. Right? That's the way it works. You know, <clears throat> If they don't call you, subpoena you, or not to, but to appear in front of a court, if they don't arrest you and so on, guess what? You did the, did the crime, but nothing happens to you. <clears throat> so one of the incredible ways that God gets around din is by tempting and bribing the prosecuting attorney, the angel called the Sutton. Now, did that ever happen? And the answer is 
many times. And I will give you at least two examples. One, in 1898, okay, in heaven, there was a huge uh, meeting where God said, okay, I have to bring now, the time has arrived, to allow the Jewish people uh, to get Eretz Yisrael. You see? Because that's part of the messianic process, is Israel. And I have to allow that. So the Sultan gets up and says, wait a minute, wait a minute. They don't deserve Israel. Because he realizes, you give them Israel, right? Israel is an incredibly holy land, right? Then they're going to get the Kedusha of Eretz Israel. He doesn't want that. Because he's got to get them to sin to be able to survive and flourish. So he, he gets up and says, wait a minute. Justice says they don't deserve it. You know, so I don't care what the timetable is. If you're adhering to justice, the Sultan says to God, you can't do it. And you are a God of justice. Like Avraham Avinu said, the judge of the earth shouldn't do justice. So God says, you're right. But guess what? Here's what I'm going to do for you. And here comes the bribe. <clears throat> The ones who will advise getting the land of Israel, and in fact, the ones who will make it happen, right, are is Theodore Herzl, an atheist, right? And not only that, but the ones who will be in charge of Eretz Israel, right, are the Zionists who are all assimilated, right? Uh, so they're the ones who will be in charge of Eretz Israel, and guess what? They will get all the Jews coming to Israel to sin, which is exactly what happened. That's what happened, <clears throat> you know, that the British took it over, and all of a sudden, Herzl said that he began the whole process, right, that the Jews need a homeland. And he said, uh, you know, I think originally he wanted Uganda, but ultimately he said Israel, right, and that became a thought in the mind of the nations, until you had the Balfour Declaration, right? And then you had the uh, different, uh, uh, you, the League of Nations that said Israel deserves a homeland and so on. But the one who took it over were the original Zionists, uh, what he called, and they're all Erev Rav. They're all interested in power and glory, right? They're not interested in Jews doing mitzvahs. But that's the, that is the essential idea of Zionism that the land of Israel replaces the religion of Israel. So what does the Sultan say to himself? Hmm, that's a very interesting proposition. Why? Because if my guys, the heir of Rav, is now in charge of Israel, right? If they're in charge, guess what? They get all the Jews who come to Israel, of which I'm sure there will be many, to sin. So there it is. I'm guaranteed a great meal for years. You see? In other words, by allowing them to be the forerunners or the reasons why Jews got back Israel, automatically it means that the Sutton now has an enormous amount of nourishment that he can live off, which is the sins of the Jews that they will influence. That's exactly what happened. You know, the Mapai, the original party, they, what they did was terrible. 
they used to take religious Jews and put them on kibbutzim, which were irreligious Yemenites, without going through the history of the early Jewish state. And in many ways what they did is they destroyed so much of the religion of the Jewish people, you see. So that's a classic case of what? A bribe. But you see how it works. If the Sultan didn't have the interest of flourishing and surviving, why would he agree? No, I defend justice. This is not justice. But what's much more paramount in his mind to survive and flourish, you see? So that's a classic example in history of the concept of Sheikh al Sultan. Another <clears throat> is in the 60s. And if you remember in the 60s in America, there was a whole push movement, right, for uh, crystals and, uh, uh, what do you call it? Um, you know, a whole movement of metaphysics and so on. You know, ideas of, uh, of beyond the, the natural forces and so on, you see. And uh, God said at that moment, there was an opening and God said, well now I have to reveal Kabbalah. And that's the messianic light. And I have to begin now to bring it down to the earth and allow its revelation. So the Sultan says, wait a minute. What kind of justice is that? They don't deserve this. So God says, you know, you're right. So here's what I'm going to do. And here comes the bribe. I will allow your guys, without naming them, right? And guess what? They're going to, Kabbalah will now become the darling of all the Hollywood stars, right? There'll be a tremendous amount of humiliation and degradation of Kabbalistic ideas. So the Sultan says to himself, great, like this I can alienate Jews from getting more fear of God by studying Kabbalah. It'll now become degraded and a laughing stock that nobody would want to touch any kind of Kabbalistic you see, and then you have all kinds of Hollywood stars, you have all kinds of people totally unworthy of learning an incredibly elevated chokhmah, wisdom, like Kabbalah. So the Sultan says to himself, that's tremendous. I'll get these people to so degrade and humiliate Kabbalistic studies, that no Jew is going to want to touch it. And that's exactly what he did, you see. And so that's another classic bribe you see uh, so these two stories clearly illustrate the concept of Sheikh al-Sultan and that's one of the strategies that God uses to get around the concept of din of justice so therefore <clears throat> they won't be prosecuted and hopefully the, the Jews will repent and, and so on you know but there's something else that's one strategy. But I want to talk about another strategy. I may not be able to finish, but I'm going to bring it up. Imagine. Here's the problem. It says that in Sanhedrin, which I once brought a long time ago, the Gemara says, Ain't ben David bo. 
Mashiach ben David will only come if it's Chayovim, if all Jews are sinning, or all Jews are righteous, Zakoim. Right? That's what it says. Now, we understand, well, if all Jews are righteous, I can understand why the Mashiach ben David comes. But if all Jews are sinning, why would that happen? You see, <clears throat> and to us it boggles the mind. How could the Mashiach come if everybody is sinning? So clearly what the Bonsham has to do, something, because the Satan gets up and says, wait a minute, the Jews are sinning. Kulm Chayom means the Jews are on the 49th gate of Tumah. So how in the world can you bring such a glorious era, which is called the Messianic era? This is what the Satan says. So then what does the Gemara mean? That this is the situation that will allow the Mashiach Mendova to come. The question is, how does God get around justice? Same problem. Uh, so we know, and I mentioned before, that this happened in Egypt, where they were in the Memteshai Tumor, right? And because of that, uh, the Sutton says, wait a minute, God wanted to make sure they don't slip into the 50th, or else they could not be redeemed. But the Sutton is screaming, so he, God said, I'm going to send them the Messiah, Moshe So the Sutton is screaming and says, wait a minute, you can't send them the Mashiach. They don't deserve this. There you are, Midas Adin. Uh, you see? So God says, okay, here's what I'm going to do, right? The Mashiach will come, but I have to intensify the suffering. So that's how God dealt with me this Adin. And lo and behold, after Moshe Rabbeinu came, it got much worse for the Jews. They had to now gather the straw at night to make the bricks in the day. It was terrible for months. Terrible. Could you imagine you can't sleep? And remember, there's no flashlights to go around Egypt looking for straw? Can you imagine the suffering that the Jewish people had? But it was in order to satisfy justice. So that's one of the ways that God dealt with what? With din, justice. You see. But there's another way. It's very, very interesting. And that way has been used for the last 300 years. And this will explain many, many phenomenon. Imagine, a guy is charged with murder, right? And he hires, obviously, a criminal defense attorney, right? <clears throat> okay, now let's assume the evidence is rock solid that this guy murdered somebody. So the question is, what's this guy's defense? How does he get his client off since there's rock solid evidence that this guy murdered somebody? That's the question. So how's he gonna do it? Well, there's not too many ways he can do it. Uh, but one of the ways is called the insanity plea, where he says, okay, you're right. My guy, you know, I can't contravene the evidence. He did murder the guy, but he's insane. Well, uh, you know, if he's insane, then he's not held responsible for his act of murder, which is interesting. There's a lot of guys trying to use that insanity play. So, you know, obviously you have to investigate and so on. Uh, but the insanity play is one of the ways to get a guy off 
if he's convicted, not convicted, but if he's charged with murder. Well, guess what? Uh, if the Jews are charged, the Jewish people, with tremendous amount of sinning, which is kulum chayovim, isn't it? Kulum chayovim means they're all guilty of what? Of sinning. That means the overwhelming majority, that's what kulum chayovim is, all of them are guilty and culpable, right? So what that means, if they're all guilty, right? Uh, so the question is, wait a minute, how does God get around? And not only that, he wants to bring Mashiach ben David to get rid of the 49 levels of Tumor because he wants to end the whole project. Uh, so what's he going to do? And the Sutton is screaming, you can't bring the Mashiach. But it says in the Gemara, that's when he comes. So the question is, what defense? Remember, God is the greatest criminal defense ever known. So it's not a problem, you see. Now, he can't say insanity because we're talking about a whole nation. You could say uh, one guy is insane, right? Right? And, and that he murdered the guy, he was insane. But what's God going to say? All the Jews are crazy? And that's why they're all sinning? Right? I'm sure there are people that would like to say that. <laughs> Especially the anti-Semites. <laughs> that the Jews are crazy or they're or evil, whatever. But that's not a plea that God will say about the Jewish people, right? And enter that as a plea in the court, which the Sultan is saying, no, can't do it. So God enters another plea. But in order to enter that plea, he must alter history. And I want to tell you something. The plea that God is going to enter is unbelievable in its grief. God. Unbelievable. What does that mean? What does God love the most? Okay? There are three things God loves. The most in all existence. One, He loves the Torah. God loves His Torah. You know, the Torah is His will. More than His will, it's His manifestation without getting into that. So God loves the Torah, literally. That's why we say Ava Rabba, right? We say it, you know, uh, that you love the Torah and so on. That's the first thing. The second thing God loves is a Jew. We say Ava Sa'ilam, an eternal love, you have loved us. And I pointed out, that's one of the attributes of God, that he loves the Jews. Because of this, God desires a relationship of dvekus, attachment with the Jewish people. <clears throat> That's what he loves the most. What God is going to do is beyond belief. He's going to deny himself the Torah and he's going to deny himself the Jews in order to save them. What does that mean? And this is a very important secret. <clears throat> in order to save them. Remember what I'm saying. What he's about to do will give him unbelievable grief. Not that God has grief, obviously he doesn't. He doesn't grieve like a human, God doesn't grieve at all. But it's as if he would grieve. You see, what does he do? And all of this is uh, concealed in this Pasuk. 
it says the Torah and it says in the in the Varm at the end I think it's in the Parshas uh, Vayelech it says that the Torah will testify against you which means that you're sinning and then it uses this word it says Kiloisi Shokach Mizaroi the Torah will never be forgotten from his seed now Rashi says it means that no matter how bad it gets the Torah will never be forgotten completely by the Torah, by the Jewish people. It won't be forgotten completely. God is assuring the Jews that no matter what the trajectory of the Jewish people is, it will never be completely forgotten. Uh, now, that's a very strange pasuk. Why? Because we think that's a nechama, that's a consolation. But it is a terrible idea. Why? <clears throat> Think about this. In order to have the promise that the Torah will not be forgotten, right? Mizaroi, from his seed, his descendants, right? Guess what? To fulfill that Pusik, all you need is one Jew out of the whole Jewish nation to remember the Torah. And then the Pusik is fulfilled isn't it? It's astounding. That's all you need. It says it won't be forgotten from his seed, his descendants. Okay. How many descendants are we talking about that it won't be forgotten? Well, in order to fulfill this verse, this Pesach, all you need is one Jew to remember his Torah. You see? But everybody else forgot it. And that Pesach is valid because it isn't forgotten from his seed. You realize what that means? God is saying, don't worry, even though there's going to be an unbelievable ignorance in Klai Yisrael, Amho Aratsus, that's what it's called, right? But it won't be total Amho Aratsus. At least one Jew will remember his Torah. That's what it means. So what God is alluding to, the end of time, that the only way I can save them is by making them Amoratsum. So I can plead ignorance. They're all Tinnikshu Nishba. They don't know. So therefore, I've, I've just now mitigated the culpability. That's, a, 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 you know, okay, it's not the insanity plea, but it's the next best thing. Guy didn't know it was forbidden. He didn't know this was a law. And let's assume that was valid. <clears throat> so God says, well, you say there's something screaming that they're sinning all over the place. And God simply says, well, what do you want from them? They're all Tinnikshanishpa. They're all children that have been captured among the Goyim and they know nothing. So therefore there's no culpability. You see? That's what this Pusik alludes to. It's a profound secret that in the end of time, and that's what this Pusik is referring to, the major strategy that God will use to save them in Kulum Chayovim because what else can you say? They're all guilty of sinning. And that's what the Satan is screaming. God says, wait a minute. You're right. But they don't know anything. They're all ignoramuses. There's no Tamid Chachomim, basically. So they're not guilty. So therefore, I can end it with a glorious era called the Messianic era. It's unbelievable when you think about that. And the Torah is actually alluding to this with a profound secrecy. That all you need is one guy to remember his Torah, and that's exactly what God is saying. 
in the end of time, basically, you're going to have one guy. Not literally, but basically. 90% of the Jewish people are gone. They're assimilated. Right? They are assimilated. They are intermarried. That's all that's left. 90% don't observe anything. Maybe one mitzvah. Maybe a woman will still light candles on the Arab Shabbos. Maybe. Or they'll have a seder, right? Where they can, you know, where they can eat matzah and maybe a little chomets on the side also. Because it's a festival, right? That's how bad. Let me tell you how bad what this means. Okay? And we now understand with this principle that the way God is going to save the Jewish people is by making them basically all amoratsim, ignoramuses. And that's exactly what's been happening since 1686. What happened in 1686? Shatz. Shatz Right? He came and said he was the Mashiach. Right? Ben David, whatever. Everybody, not everybody, but enormous amount of people believed him. And then in the end, he converted to Islam. Because whoever the sultan was gave him a choice. You either convert or we kill you. One or the other. Guess what? He converted in 16... He died in 1686. What did that spawn? And now I'm going to give you the, the incredible history of what all of that means and so on. But let me give you an example how bad it is. You see, in Russia, when the communists, and they are one of the forces... Why did God allow communism? And the essential idea of communism is not just the socialism or the crazy dictatorship that they had, because that's really what it's all about. Nobody's interested in Marx or the economy. They all want power. And if they equalize everybody, then nobody can stand up as different and they can chop everybody's head off with one stroke called communism. But anyway, there was a family, you see, and they remembered, and they didn't know why. They knew that the tenth day of Tishrei, Yom Kippur, it was some kind of a holiday. Because the knowledge of what that is had long been forgotten, long ago. This was in communist Russia. I don't know what year, but I remember I heard this. It was just incredible, you know. So what did they do? Well, they knew it was some type of a Jewish holiday. They had no idea what it was. Right? And we know what it is. It's a day of atonement that you fast. So what do you do on a Jewish holiday? You make a meal. So the whole family got together and had a suda on Yom Kippur. I mean, talk about the Amor Aratsus, but they knew nothing. So to them it was logical. Uh, you make a festive meal on a holiday. Could you imagine? So they're making a festive meal to celebrate Judaism on Yom Kippur when the essential mitzvah is to fast. Talk about Amoratus. Talk about ignorance. Talk about the unbelievable tragedy that the Jews don't even know what Yom Kippur is all about. You see, oh, that's the extent of what communism did to the Jewish people. And there are millions of Jews in Russia. You see, whatever there is and so on, right? So I'm going to illustrate it more but this is what's going on. What else? Well, let's begin to understand. 
What was the first? What did Shatz do? Shabtai Tzvi. We don't realize that what Shabtai Tzvi did is present with us today. It's not just 300 years ago, 1686, when he died. There are three things that came out of Shabtai Tzvi, and he forever changed the Jewish people. That's how devastating that historical event was. The first thing he did is people said, if somebody learning Kabbalah can become this, an absolute fraud, then you can't learn Kabbalah. So what happened was, is there's no more Kabbalah. People shunned the Kabbalah. Because of what he did, Kabbalah became anathema. No, you cannot, you, the Chazal came out with a Xera against learning Kabbalah. Because they saw if this is what it can do to a guy, Shabzai Tzvi, then don't learn it. That's the first thing. Uh, the second thing it did, right, is that people realized and said, wait a minute, we just went through Tach Vatat, which is Chamelniki, right? And the Jews didn't know what to do. There was tremendous amount of persecutions in the Middle Ages. They had no idea. So why do you think Shabzai Tzvi was so popular? Because they were hoping he would solve the problem of anti-Semitism. Oh, the Mashiach is here, you see? And when that didn't happen, when Shabtai Tzvi himself became a Muslim, right? So the whole messianic aspiration died. Because they saw this guy said he's a messiah. This guy's a total fraud. You see? So the whole messianic aspiration died. And they said, well, wait a minute. So what do we do? What do we do to get rid of the anti-Semitism? Because it was terrible. Especially in Europe, which is where the Jews were, and in Russia, under the Tsar, pogroms, it was terrible. You see? So that's why the Jews now rejected the messianic possibility. So what did they do? So they came up with this idea that the only way to prevent anti-Semitism is we have to become like the Goyim. There you are. They assimilated. Because they said as long as we are separate, we can't survive. But what happens if we become Goyim? Forget about the mitzvahs. Let's adopt their belief system. You see? And therefore we have to become like the Goyim. And that was the real beginning of assimilation and uh, <coughs> inter intermarriage and so on. People don't realize. In fact, that was the beginning of Reform Judaism, which I'll talk about in a minute. <clears throat> it began from Shabzai Tzvi from the fact that they, 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 uh, it was forlorn, no more. Anti-Semitism will always be part of us. The only way to get rid of it is to become like them, which of course didn't work, we know, but at least that's the thought, you see. And the third very bad outcome was they said, wait a minute, everybody believed Shabzai Tzvi, including all the rabbis. What happened to all the Gedolim? So they said, forget about the Gedolim. They don't know what they're talking about. We cannot rely on the Gedolim. You see? And that's why all of a sudden, there was a tremendous backlash against the Gedolim. Because so many of them were caught up in the fervor of Shabzai Tzvi. you imagine those three things? Forget about the Mashiach. We need to assimilate. Right? Forget about the Gedolim. You, you, you see? Forget about Kabbalah. That has remained with us. 
that put into the Jewish people a tremendous skepticism about the rabbis. You see, about orthodoxy. They don't know what they're doing. You see, and that is still with us today. People don't realize that Shabtai Tzvi, by doing what he did, a false messiah, he destroyed three fundamental ideas. The limit of Kabbalah, which was beginning to grow because you had the Ari, the Ari of Chaim Vital, that's when he lived right before that and began to grow. So that killed the whole Kabbalistic movement uh, of that type of spirituality. And it killed the belief in the Chachomim. And it killed the belief in the Mashiach, right? The only way to avoid anti-Semitism is how is to do, is to assimilate. And therefore, what happened after that is terrible, <clears throat> you see. Because that begins, what? Reformed movement. You see, that's the beginning, Mendelssohn, of the Reformed Movement, which is exactly all of this. Forget the rabbis. We need to drop half the Torah because it's not relevant. What do we need it for? Let's assimilate. Let's do what the Goyim do. All of that. So that is the beginning of the Reform Movement, the conservative movement in Germany. Uh, you know, in the conservative movement especially, the Reform Movement was in Europe with Mendelssohn. So first Mendelssohn, what he did was saying, you know, you have to also read the uh, books of the Goyim, the philosophies and so on. And I think he translated the Torah into German. That was the beginning where they were now, now, now trying to what's called, you know, uh, fraternize with the Goyim and so on. All from Shatz. You see, Shapsai's fate. <clears throat> In any case, so that's the beginning of what? So you had that. You had the reform movement by Mendelssohn, which became the conservative movement in the 1800s, a whole bunch of guys and so on, you know. So you have that, right? And then besides that, all of this, and, and, and that's what you begin to see with the incredible concept, you know. You have the uh, communism, which destroyed Torah. All of these movements destroyed the Torah. They destroyed the whole authority and legitimacy of Torah, which means people didn't learn it and so on. You see, this was the way the Rabbanishim got the Jewish people to be Amaratsim, to be ignoramuses. He allowed these movements to grow, you see. He gave them sight to Dishmaya that they can grow. Why? And the answer is, not only because that's what they chose, because he needs now the plea that they don't know anything. So he can now, by Kulm Chayobim, he can bring, right? He can now bring the, the Mashiach. So look what you have. The beginning, you have shots That kicks off the whole thing. And then you have reformed, conservative, communism, Zionism, Haskalah, where they want to assimilate into Russian, uh, you know, that's, it's all about getting rid of Judaism, getting rid of the Torah, you see? Uh, it's about even the Holocaust. People don't realize the Holocaust is not only the death of six million Jews. They don't realize what really happened. The Holocaust killed the cream of Torah because they wiped out all the yeshivas in Poland, right? 
uh, the yeshivas in Czechoslovakia, Lithuania, they destroyed all of that. Between communism and then the Holocaust, they killed all the enormous amount of the sages of people, the Rosh Hashivas, the Jews. They killed the enormous amount of Chachomim, those people who had the whole tradition of the Torah. Ah, you see, that's why, you see, in Germany, this was the elite or the cream of the Torah scholars of the Jewish people. So it's not only that it killed six million Jews, which is true, but what it also did is it destroyed the scholarship of Torah, you see, and that's one of its major reasons why it existed. And not only that, besides the Haskalah and the Holocaust and communism, you see, in Europe and America, butchering the Torah, right? And then, of course, you have the Zionist, the Erev Rav of Israel. Do you know that I mentioned this? 1.5 million kids are in the public school system in Israel. Do you know that the incredible thing is that if you say Shema Yisrael and ask kids, can you finish that off? Most kids can't do that. They are completely denied, not totally, but basically, a Jewish education. They don't know anything. And if they do know anything, it's all superficial. You know, it's the historical event. They're not taught any mitzvahs, nothing. This is the secular system. This is the Jewish people. Do you know how many psukim verses the Torah goes by that Moshe Rabbeinu says, and you will observe the commandments? Did you ever count them? Every other pasuk is where Moshe Rabbeinu is saying, and you will observe the chukim, the mishpatim, and so on. Could you imagine if Moshe Rabbeinu got up and took a look at what's going on in Israel? Uh, wait a minute. 1.5 million kids. You have any idea how many kids that is? They don't know anything. And this is the future of the Israeli population. You see, I'm not even talking about America. Well, how many reformed and conservative and reconstructionists there are that have destroyed Jewish education in America. <coughs> you know, you go to any city in Europe and there's nothing there, basically. Right? And if there is anything there, it's a handful. It's a handful. Okay, you go to England, so there's some yeshivas in London. Right? Some yeshivas in London, in Gateshead, Manchester. But it, it's nothing compared to what there is. I remember many times in my speaking, I used to uh, go around and speak. It, all, you know, all over America, many, many places. And one of the things I always did whenever I went to a place, you know, I asked, how many Orthodox people are there? Basically, which means how many Orthodox people are learning Torah, you know? And they would tell me, well, in this city, the 80,000 Jews and 2,000 people are Orthodox. You mean 78,000 people have nothing to do with Judaism? Right. And that's many, many cities. Uh, this is a result of what? Of conservative, reformed, and reconstructionists. You see. So what God has done has allowed <coughs> this to occur. But why? Like I said, because we are bringing the Mashiach to Kurum Chayovim. This is, it's not the problem. God wants to end everything. But the problem is they're tremendous kitrugim. You know what I'm saying? At least in, in you know, you could say at least in Egypt, you know, there was no mountain terror. It was before. But at least they, they were more religious, although they were Ayyubar of Zara. 
but at least they were united in one country. Jews all over the world, who's religious anymore, really? Most, you know, you look at L.A., Los Angeles, most, most people are gone, and so on. And this repeats itself throughout the entire world. Forget about South American Jewry, or Jewry in Africa, or even Jewry in, in, in uh, Europe. So forget about the Soviet Union, right? And even Jewry in, how many Orthodox Jews do you think that know Torah in Israel? How many, really? 1.5 million kids know nothing about Torah. That's what you're looking at, you see. This is the plea that God is entering, ignorance. So therefore, he's what's called mitigating the culpability of the Jews to allow them in the end, right, to bring the Mashiach. That's really what's happening. Now, I don't want to end this year on a bad note, but I want to tell you something. It's changing. The decree is ending, which is really very interesting. And I won't have time to finish it today. I'll have to finish it the next time. Uh, it is ending. The decree of Amaratsis is beginning to end. And I will point out specific social reforms that are happening and so on. And it, it, it slowly begins to turn around because it's no longer necessary to defend the Jews that way. And by the way, one of the ways, and now you understand, one of the reasons why COVID has killed so many Jews. I mean, it's amazing. COVID has taken away in the last four years. Do you, do you have any idea how many Jewish Torah scholars have died? Rosh Hashivas, Rebbes, and, and, and Torah scholars, Balabatim, in Lakewood, in New York, right? All over the world and so on. Why? Because again, it's all part of the attempt to offer a plea that the Jews don't know, so they cannot really be held guilty. That's why COVID has done a tremendous service for Amaratsis and so on. So besides providing a kapora, an atonement, because when a tzaddik dies, there's a tremendous kapora for Klai Israel. It also diminishes the Torah, because now there's less Torah. You see? I mean, you cannot replace somebody like Rab Chaim Kanievsky. He's, he's, he's not replaceable. A man with that type of knowledge is not replaceable. How many people do not anymore have the access to his Torah that he's gone? You see? And it's not only him. It's all over Israel. You know, you pick up a paper, every week there's somebody dead who's a Rosh Shiva or something like that. You see? So this is an explanation of what is going on at the end of time. And remember, the Pasuk, It won't be forgotten from a seed, right? Because you're only going to have one person left or 15 people who remember their Torah. You see? And that's a prophecy but it will be forgotten by the overwhelming number of Jews. It's astounding what that Pasuk really means. But I do want to say that it's beginning to end. There are clear signs, which I will talk about in the next year, that it's being reversed. And it's much more than that, <clears throat> because there are many indications, which I will explain next, next time and so on, you know. Uh, that is, uh, for instance, I'll give you one which I have to really explain. It says, 
ain't a glorious miskan. This is a medrash rabba, Pasha Sav, section three, an incredible medrash. And this is one of the ideas. Ain't a glorious miskansois. The exiles will only be gathered. That means the end of the Golas. Ella Bishril only because of the schus, the merit of Limud Mishnais. Not Limud Gemara, Limud Mishnais. This, and I will explain that next, next time, you know. That, what, what do you mean, Bishus? That means the exile ends with an unbelievable rise in called Yediyos Torah, in knowledge of the Torah. And it doesn't say Gemara, it says Mishnayis. Now, who would ever think, right, Mishnayis? Hey, Mishnayis is only good for your sights, right? <clears throat> but no, because Mishnayis is what ends the exile. Because Mishnayis are facts. There's no Shakaritaya, there's no give and take. So it's possible for people to know the entire Mishnah and so on, which is Kola Terakula, which I will talk about and so on, you know. Uh, so God says, obviously, the entire exile ends because of this. So clearly, this has to happen before the end of the exile, which is before Mashiach comes. So, therefore, you're now beginning to see a reversal of that decree, you see. In any case, so we now understand, I have talked about two strategies. One is Sheikh the Sultan, which is bribery for the Sultan. And the second one, which in many ways uh, is terrible, is the tremendous diminishment of Torah in Klai Israel. And what you have to understand is the unbelievable what's called Kaviyoch, grief of God, that the two things that he loves the most, the Torah is almost completely forgotten among the Jewish people. 90% of the Jews know nothing about the Torah. And the second thing is the destruction of the Jewish people itself. The Holocaust, what communism did, you see all the pogroms and all the, the wars with now with the Arabs and so on, Hamas and so on, you know, how many Jews have died and so on. So God has enormous kaviyochel, as they say, as if one could say, grief and so on. But this is all in the end to satisfy justice and give all the Jews their place in the Ilam Thank you.